Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There's an old saying, you can choose your friends but not your family. Well, that's not quite right. My sister-in-law is an extremely talented author and essayist, winner of the Melbourne Prize and all-round good friend. Now, to, uh, to the people in the family, I'd say, welcome, Andy. But to the literary circle, I'd say, welcome, Andrea Goldsmith. Hello, Jen. <laughs> Now, Andy, your new book, Invented Lives, one of the settings in your novel is Melbourne in the 1980s. Now, did you have to do research for this or did you just go into your memory? I I have a very good memory and I I have actually accrued quite a few years in my lifetime. Um, It's amazing how fresh, actually, Melbourne in the 80s is. The way I got back there was imagining, looking at what we had now and imagining what we didn't have then. Like, for example, this is the pre-digital age. So there are telephone boxes and... and CDs came in. Yeah. And and the game Trivial Pursuit. I love that reminder. And, of course, you know, the the universities were freer. Mm. There was a new batch of people going there. And on the bad side, the Grim Reaper. Yeah, it was the time of AIDS. It was the time of great change in the world too. Gorbachev had come in in Russia and things were sort of falling falling down um, behind the Iron Curtain. Um, And here, yes, we're very much taken up with AIDS. Um, It was um, the the dollar had been um, floated. Uh, Hawkey was in, Hawkey, who will forget him. Um, so yes, it was a very, very particular time, and it was, it was an exciting time. Things were happening, but it was pre-digital, and that made a huge difference. Well, we know Melbourne, those that have lived here, but we also see Melbourne through the eyes of Galena. Now, where's she from? Galena is a twenty-five-year-old Soviet Jew who was. She's the central character of Invented Lives. And she was one of the many Soviet Jews that were allowed to leave during the 1980s, and a number of them did come here to Australia. They left at life for Jews in um, um, Soviet Russia, or any Russia, um, has has not been good. Um, And they left on the proviso. They were never Mm. allowed to return. So in a sense, they are a type of exile. And we do see Melbourne through the eyes of a stranger, someone who is trying to find home but has come from a place so different from Melbourne. Uh, When Galena is of an age, her mother, Lydia, tells her about her spoiled biography. That's a loaded term. Mm. Well, it was part of particularly the Stalin years that... Um, so many, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands, some would say even more, um, people who were um, killed or exiled um, to Siberia, but they'd die there, um, during Stalin's um, reign, I was about to say, but it was Stalin's terror. And um, 
Galena's grandparents mm. were two people who were taken away and eventually died. This is really interesting back history. You know, mm. it was I, I found this fascinating because you know her the grandfather was a mathematician. Yes, he was. And mm. the whole thing about uh, Stalin wanting a census, mm. and then if it goes wrong, who do you blame? And that's <laughs> the and the census. The census went of 1938 went. Very, very wrong. And um, Yuri, um, who was um, Galena's grandfather, was very much in the firing um, line. They came for him, um, the precursor of the KGB, um, came for him one night and um, he actually didn't survive the week. And um, a couple of months later they came for his wife. Um, What happened to the children of those who were taken... Um, and killed um, in the terror was they did have a spoiled biography. And so these children, and often they were very, mm. very young, had to pretend as if nothing had happened, as if they hadn't just lost not just their parents but any security, any life they'd had. Mm. And Galena's mother, who had gone through that herself, did not want to put that on her daughter. Galena, uh, Galena also had an uncle that she only ever saw twice. Once when he was uh, came to the house and took some of the parents' special things, and another time at Bresnip's funeral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. And he makes a dark return. Da 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 da. Yes, he does. Well, the story starts with Galena having to make her own decisions, and that chapter title is called Death and Reckless Behaviour in Leningrad. I do like making up chapter titles. <laughs> and the chapter titles are great. Yes, I, I do like that. And they're a way of actually feeding you in. And with this one, um, Galena's much-loved mother, there's only ever been the two of them together in the family, um, she dies on the first page. So that's mm. death. Um, Galena is making her way home. She is absolutely wrapped up in, in grief. Okay. And she bumps into... An Australian. Andrew Morrow. Andrew Morrow. Why is he in Russia? He is a mosaicist. He's a deeply shy man Mm -hmm. from Melbourne and he is studying with the the great mosaicists um, who are working on a wonderful, wonderful church in um, Leningrad, St Petersburg. Yeah, the, the, the Church of the Spilled Blood, yes. if ever you've seen it, it's yeah. magnificent. Which is, it's a church that's the, the whole interior, and it's enormous, as only Russians can do. Um, it's all mosaic. Well, look, as you say, he's shy, he's introvert, but he'd like to be much, so much more with himself. You know, he'd like to be um, outward and or he'd actually like to be in a lighthouse. Mm. And he's got his dog named after a lighthouse. Yes, he does. He's, I think he's quite resigned to being a shy man. I mean, I think it's made a difference that he's chosen to be an artist and he's very, very good at what he Mm. does. And um, and that's what he is. He says some people are, you know, outgoing and some people are handsome and he's shy. He's actually quite handsome too. (laughs) Well, his parents, Sylvie and Leonard, they're... They also have invented lives. Mm. I'm really interested in the way we invent ourselves. It's very different in these days of social media, but we have always done it. There's always been a public and a private. And the lovely thing about fiction is, and particularly fiction 
of the sort that I write, which is written from character point of view, is that you can actually get to the private lives in a way that you can't so much in real life. So each of these characters is layered and the reader gets to see all the layers. Well, we know that uh, Leonard is an office furniture manufacturer, but he wants to be a poet. And Sylvie, she's the domestic goddess, but she has a secret passion, which Mm. is absolutely fascinating. It's... She collects letters, and she collects... These letters are written by strangers, long-dead strangers, and her letters enable her to expand the confines of a life that, for a woman who was born in 1930, had few opportunities, that her life is small. It's a good life, it's a safe life, it's a secure life, but it's intellectually very, very narrow. And through these letters, the um, the the margins of her life expand. The letters do play an important role. Oh, they do. Well, there's the magic of the mail. This is um, how Sylvie sees it. Getting from one place to another and the delight of the everyday walk to the letterbox and sorting and finding a letter. And this is a quote, a pocket-sized package of a person. Yes, and I think that um, um, we're losing a lot by not writing letters, emails just don't cut the mustard. They really, And texting is the most ridiculous <laughs> form of communication ever. Well, look, this book is really also about the, the migrant experience. And it, when, you, when you see it through um, Galena's eyes, you, you just sort of realise just what a difficult process it is. Uh, and reading the book really made me feel that, that just how much we take for granted. Even that simple experience, I take um, Galena goes to the Victoria Market mm. with um, with Andrew, and all of that richness and that plenitude and all mm. of the food, even that her response is so very different to ours. Yeah, all this freedom, but no one's looking after you. You know, this mm. is where that security is. And this was another quote, and. It really makes makes you think. Home was to identity as blood was to a body. Mm-hmm. And but she knows she can never go home, and she yeah. knows that really that's the reason she's here. And she can't. At one stage, um, Andrew's driving her somewhere, and he identifies places: the school he went to, the shops he shopped at, the home he used to live in. And she's got none of those signposts to her past. So how does she present herself in this strange new country? One idea was, which thanks to you, I saw, there were oak trees in Russia and big ones thriving in the botanic garden. She should take lessons from oaks. Yes, yes, she does think that, doesn't she? Well, after two years, she finally made contact with Andrew. He was wonderful in his ideas about how they should go around. He he really does plan these weekends. In his mind. In his mind, because, yes. So let's have a little thought from Andrew. So Andrew is this deeply shy person, and... um, but there's more to this relationship with um, Galena. During the past few months, in the privacy of his mind, he has resorted to the cosmos to describe her. She is out of this world. She is heavenly. She's a fiery comet. She's a shooting star. And now here, on this Australian beach, with the roar of the sea and the awakened sky and her arm firm against his body... Here, 
on earth with him. How brightly does she shine? How greatly does he love her? But what of her feelings for him? Look, this a lot of Andrew Goldsmith's books have been made into sort of book group discussions, but I think there's one aspect that will really make everybody think, and it's can art save lives? Mm. You know, as uh, Andrew has Galena say, art has the ability to mute pain, and this is all through that uh, Siege of Leningrad experience. And the other thing, too, is children's books as being subversive. And this was very, very much the case during the Stalin years in Russia, that... They believed that nothing serious could come through in children's fiction. So really great writers like Ossip Mandelstam, um, he wrote for children. Yeah. He got away with it. And illustrations, yeah. because yeah. it had to do with a certain type of painting. Oh, yeah. Look, um, it's fantastic. And it's not because she's my sister-in-law, because that's she's true. a fine writer. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. <laughs> and I've been speaking with Andrea mm. Goldsmith about her book, Invented Lives, published by Scribe. Thank you, Jan. Now, you were looking back. I'm looking forward, in a way. The future is full of promise, but there might be some challenges and hurdles to overcome. Melissa Ferguson's depiction of a dystopian future in her novel The Shining Wall outlines just what some of those challenges might be. So, Melissa, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, each of the characters in uh, your novel highlight something that's quite plausible about an obstacle we're sort of going to be facing in the future. One of your lead characters, a leader, lives in a deprived community. It's called Mm -hmm. the Demi Settlement, beyond the Shining Wall. Now, she's virtually forced to prostitute herself or she's got to find work that's intermittent. Um, And in many ways, it highlights the nature of work that's happening today where where people are forced into unethical situations simply to have work yes well i um while it's uh people think that dystopia dystopian stories are often futuristic i think there are people that are are living in dystopian situations now in different places around the world um and different times throughout history so it's not necessarily just a futuristic concept yeah i mean the uh well, what's taking place? There's a an implant that's going to go in. This uh, sort of heightens this notion about emails and yeah. tweets and everything that Andrea didn't like. But, you know, we're going to an absurd extreme yeah. where things are being implanted. And yet the work she's got is to help people and facilitate this, because, but or hand out pamphlets or then help the people through the process. It's not a question of whether we can actually look at whether this is ethical or inappropriate or whatever. Mm. We've got to have work. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, the question with the technology is just because we can, should we? And that, yeah, that, that permeates. There are some other areas there. A leader's looking after Gracie, now, who's not a blood relative, and that's interesting, and... Basically, she has to give Gracie up. She has to uh, relinquish her um, and and relinquish any sense of altruism. Mm -hmm. And that's so, well, heartbreaking in a way uh, that that we're forced into those situations. Yes, well, it is a very difficult situation for her and she's 
and she's forced into that by her circumstances and um and that's because of of, of poverty and, and lack of privilege and, and lack of access to resources. Well, healthcare and, and all healthcare, of these sorts of things. Yeah. So let's get rid of. Well, it's not that she's getting rid of. She's hoping that uh, she's trying to give her a better future. A better future. Yeah. But there's no guarantee. But she's forced into that situation, yes. basically, yeah. as people. Which happens to people, yeah. Today. Today. Yeah. So this is permeating. There's Officer Shukba. Now, this raises all sorts of interesting things. A neo-Neanderthal, what has happened there? Okay, so the, the, the world is um, a place where they have uh, brought Neanderthals back from extinction and cloned them um, as a source of la- a cheap source of labour with none of the rights of Homo sapiens. So there are a lot of ethical issues around doing that and um, the treatment of the... Uh, Neanderthals is well. This this raises all sorts of uh, questions. I mean, this whole notion of cloning. Mm. We can do it in a way. Uh, there are already experiments being undertaken mm. with cloning. How far do we go? Mm. Yes. Well, that that is the question. The, the bringing back of um, extinct species. We're not quite there with the science yet, which is um, the reason I set the, the world futuristically. Uh, but there is a cloning of living animals can be done and cloning of humans is possible. But, yes, th- it raises the question that you know, cloning of animals, well, humans are animals. Yes. And, and so yeah. given that we have the science and the technology, mm. is it just a short hop, skip and a jump away before it's actually done? Well, the, the ethics is really the needing to move a lot faster these days with the rapid progression of these this kind of technology and this kind of science. Um, you know, that ethics is really scrambling to keep up. Mm. Because, and, and also there's a stratification then mm-hmm. of society because yeah. if you can clone, then, I mean, it, it goes into, um, well, Huxley in Brave New World mm-hmm. looked at this and uh, engineering people for certain functions within society because, you know, there's another character, Farassi, uh, who's basically a drone, mm-hmm. has to work in a factory. Yes, yeah. So she's she's been uh, cloned for to be a labourer, and um, but she's got aspirations, and this- she has. Yes, so uh, that's that's the thing that people um, I think don't understand about clones is they think that they're all the same, and but they all have their own individual but, personalities. But this is the same with with Shukba and Farasi. Farasi wants to be be a star so yeah, to speak yeah. <laughs> very very human sort of function i mean shukba wants a relationship and and has uh, an ethical attitude uh, she's a police officer mm-hmm. not meant to question her superiors but when she sees something that's inappropriate shukba mm-hmm. wants to change things she's not allowed to so that you can't clone out the the uh, human element, so to speak. The humanity in them, yes, that's right, yeah. And so the, all, all of this science that we've got fails to recognise mm-hmm. those qualities. Yes, that's right, and I think that's a, that's a common misconception about clones is that, you know, they are going to be some kind of robotic thing that we can compliant. do what we want with, yeah. compliant, but they are just individuals just generated in a different way. Yeah. Um, then you've got the opposite of this, those living behind the shining wall, an elite 
Uh, and it's almost, well, it is perverse. The two fairy godmothers didn't look a day over 30, even though Gange had said they were both nearing 100 years old. They've got access to everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the the difference between the rich and poor is that these advances in, in technology and healthcare um, are going to be available to them, but not necessarily available to... But it leads to a perversion, so to speak. Really. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's... You, you know, the power is accumulated by these people that have lived for a long time and uh, not don't want to let go of power. Yeah, relinquish power, but, but also then the quality of the, the life they lead is not really human. It's, it's, a, it's a perversity. It's, a, it's, it's changed so much mm. that they now think that is the norm. Yes. It's, it's yeah, weird. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and and you've got them portrayed as fairy godmothers, so to speak, because they're living in their own sort of mind's eye. Now, uh, yeah. with the story, there's this rolling out of an implant system, which raises all sorts of concerns. Um, and so an implant and therefore um, your whole, what, bodily uh, processing, mental processing can be tapped into yes yeah so there's um you know there's there's the benefits of, of the implant uh you know it's f- for communication and uh, entertainment but also for health reasons um so that there is again that question of you know just because we can should we do this uh well haven't we done so already well, in we're contemporary going down that society path. yes but yeah. to what degree have we gone down it already well an interesting um issue that's come up for me with this book because they are the the Neanderthal characters and you can now send your own DNA off to find out, you know, your ancestry and find out how much Neanderthal DNA you have. And that's something that really interests me, but it's something that I will never do because I I also write dystopia. I don't trust, you know, corporations or the government with my DNA, but people are freely giving away their DNA sequences now. And, yeah. Well, what does that mean? If, if you're giving away your DNA sequence, are you giving away heritage, history? What? How do you see it? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what nefarious purposes they're going to, you know, find to 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 do with it. But um, it's sort of in older science fiction stories that kind of control and knowledge and surveillance by the government is seen as a, you know a very or corporations seen as a very dystopian. Uh, outcome and now people are quite happy to to give people their well i mean DNA. It, it's already in society not the dna necessarily but i mean it, when you go shopping mm-hmm. um they if you use a one of the rewards cards or whatever your purchases are tracked yes. they can then communicate you i mean it's it's good for the corporation they uh, colds for example can work out at the flow mm-hmm. of goods mm-hmm. But they can also work out what you're buying and then send you advertising or whatever to try and tap into and get you to spend more and and the like. That's right. And our phones are often telling people where we are every minute of the day. Yes. Even if we're not checking into places, if you've you've got your location services on, you you know you you're being tracked all the time. And therefore, what what happens to privacy? Is there such a thing in in the future yeah. as a as a privacy? 
What and and what would that mean if you don't have that ability to be private? Good question. <laughs> the next book. <laughs> the next book com- coming up. So it it's actually quite frightening. Yes. And yet we're willing. Here's the other thing, though. We're willingly giving All our this information this yeah. information away yes. about who we are, where we are, what mm-hmm. we're doing. The other thing, and we're seeing it politically today, an election coming up, I believe, uh, where basically this whole concept of fake news can be channeled. The algorithms Mm. on a lot of the uh, programs and things you search keep sending you information. So Mm. in the American election, for example, the the last one, Clinton and Trump, um, somebody wanted to go down to a pizza shop and sort out the situation because it was said that Clinton was running a a racket, a a prostitution racket from that shop. Mm. And and it it just defies belief. But this person saw a story, followed a story, was then fed more stories of a similar nature according to the algorithm, Mm. which led them Mm. basically to believe it was true. And so we're channeling information in that way, corrupting any ability to think beyond. And we get into our little uh, bubbles as well of, um, you know, what the algorithm feeds us because of where we've been before and so people get, you know, quite sheltered in their bubble of like-minded And uh, so you don't have perspective anymore. Mm. Um, Are there any constants in human nature, basically, that will save us from this dystopia? Uh, I I think... um, the idea of a uh, family, even if it's found family, and, and those relationships are, um, a, you know, a theme that runs through my book, and that I, that I think is something that people are always going to want that human connection. But you've got to believe in it, and you've got to want it, and you've got to work mm. toward that mm-hmm. in order for that to happen, so that you can yes. overcome the dysfunction. Melissa, you've provided a number of challenges. Uh, The book is called The Shining Wall, the author Melissa Ferguson and What Our Future Holds, and it's a transit lounge release. So thank you for coming in today, Melissa. And I was speaking with Andrea Goldsmith about her Invented Lives, published by Scribe, and it was about one migrant changing countries and also changing lives of those she meets.